serve as a professor or a doctor degree, for example, the president reminded Amir al-Mu'mineen alayhi salam, Imam Ahl al-Bayt, the way we speak to our children. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم In an eloquent sermon سيدنا ومولانا أمير المؤمنين ومولى الموحدين علي بن أبي طالب the commander of the faithful and speaking in regards to the holy Quran states that if you were to find yourself facing tribulations and difficulties, if you find yourself surrounded by all sorts of tribulations, and if you had drowned within them like the night drowns in darkness, then seek refuge to the Holy Qur'an. For the Holy Qur'an is a shafiq, it is an interceder, with an intercession that is acknowledged by the Almighty Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then he says, allow the Qur'an to be your leader. Allow the Qur'an to be your imam. Walk behind the teachings of the Qur'an so that you may conquer the highest mountains of human perfection, so that you gain victory. What prompted me to choose this particular topic that I'm going to unfold this important evening is the increasing number of stereotypes and the increasing notion of Islamophobia around the world. We find that the world today, and especially the West, has been consumed by the notion of Islamophobia. And since 9-11, this phobia against Islam and Muslims, the fear of Islam and Muslims has been on the rise. I recall when President Barack Obama was running for office, there were many people who said that Barack Obama is a Muslim, therefore he should not run as a candidate for the White House. How can we have a Muslim as a president? How can a Muslim dare to candidate himself and to run for the Democratic Party? Those people knew very well that Barack Obama was not a Muslim. Those people knew very well that Barack Obama did not adhere to the Islamic faith. Their intentions were for himself, the president, his campaign managers, his staffers, and the entire Democratic Party to repeatedly and continuously separate Barack Obama from Islam. Barack is not a Muslim. He was never a Muslim. He does not practice or adhere to the Islamic faith. And by that, condemning the religion of Islam, putting down the Muslims. And I could not help but to think 
that no one turned around and said, so what if he was a Muslim? So what if he were to be a Muslim? As long as he's a good candidate, as long as he's the man for the job, then we're going to endorse him regardless of his faith, whether he's Muslim or Catholic or Protestant or whatever he may be. Pew, a very famous research center based in the United States of America, recently published some shocking numbers and polls in regards to Islam and Muslims in the West and specifically in America. Pew suggests that 56% of Muslims living in the, in the West find that life has become more difficult for them after 9-11. Living in the West has become more difficult for them after 9-11. 55% of Muslims in the United States of America said in the past 12 months they have faced at least five acts of hostility. 28% of Muslims said at least in the, 12, the past 12 months, they have faced 12, a minimum of 12 acts of suspicion towards them. 25% of Muslims said that their local mosques, their local houses of worship, have been subject to one form or another for, or another of hate mongering or vandalism. That is why such notions have left Muslims living in the West with an identity crisis. What do I mean? You find that some Muslims living in the West have completely separated themselves from their faith, have completely isolated themselves from their local Islamic houses of worship, have completely ignored their religious teachings. So if his name is Balak, for example, he changes his name to Terry, goes and works 12, 14 hours a day, treats his home like a bed and breakfast, goes home, sleeps, wakes up in the morning, has breakfast, takes a shower, he's out the door. Not even one day out of the week is dedicated to God. Not even one day out of the week is dedicated to the spiritual nourishment. Not even one hour of the week is dedicated to feed his spirituality or to focus on his family or to focus on the values invested within the Holy Qur'an. So 10 years, 20 years, 15 years pass, when his kids get in trouble with the law, or something wrong happens, then he looks for the local masjid. Where is the masjid? Where is the sheikh? Where is the sayyid? Let's go talk to him. Or, after working for so long and ignoring the home, and ignoring the place where you ought to find a peace of mind, when his wife decides to divorce him, he looks for the local masjid. And there are others on the other end of the spectrum. 
What do I mean? There are people living in the West, he goes to work, he goes to school, he rides the bus every single day, wearing his short dishdasha, long beard, carrying a miswak, and the time of salah he has to pray. Whether it's the middle of a park, whether it's a restaurant, if he doesn't find space on top of his car. Believe me, I've seen it. In New York City, I've seen people pray on top of their taxis, cabs. Allah says pray, pray on time. But Allah also tells you pray in the right place. Allah tells you give respect to the place where you're about to perform your salah. Don't make a mockery out of Islam. Don't make a mockery out of salah. Don't make a mockery out of the most noble act in the religion of Islam, which is prayers. As-salatu amudu al-deen in qubilat qubila ma siwaha wa in ruddat hudda ma siwaha. I recall just before I came, one of the brothers sent me a YouTube video of a rapper who is part of our community, still is part of our community. And uh, he has a music video, a rap music video. And interestingly, in his rap music video, he has Muslim girls dancing for him. Some of them are without hijab, and some of them are wearing hijab dancing in a rap music video. While their parents are probably a permanent member, while their parents are probably permanent members at a masjid or a Husayniya. Some people believe when I come to the West, my job and my responsibility is to take the welfare check, to live in welfare housing, to go once a year to Arba'in, go to Karbala, do the ziyar of Imam Hussein, and every day gather in my local masjid, local Husseiniya, discuss politics. And they have completely ignored their children. They have completely ignored the most important and vital factor of their lives. We should learn from Ahlul Bayt the way we speak to our children, the way we advise them and admonish them, and set exemplary figures for them. What do I mean? Amir al-Mu'mineen wa Mawla al-Wahideen Ali ibn Abi Talib looks at his son Imam al-Hasan, and he says to him, Bunayya Hasan, oh my son Hasan, wajadtuka ba'dhi. I find you to be a part of me. وَجَدْتُكَ بَعْضِي Then he says, لَا وَاللَّهِ بَلْ وَجَدْتُكَ كُلِّي No, I see you as all of my existence. All of my heart. حَتَّى إِذَا شَيْئًا أَصَابَكَ أَصَابًا If I see that you face any sort of difficulty, I share those moments of difficulty with you. It's not just enough for you to tell your son or your daughter, Baba, I love you once a week and that's it. This I love you is meaningless. Especially some people, they're used to it on the phone. I love you. What is this I love you? This means nothing. Love is when you spend time with your children. 
You spend quality time with them, not just time. And you don't condemn them. There are parents who do not use words of affirmation with their children. Words of inspiration with their children. We find that Amir al-Mu'mineen alayhi salam, Imam al-Hussein speaking to Ali al-Akbar. Amir al-Mu'mineen speaking to his children, he inspires them, he motivates them. When Imam al-Hussein looks at Ali al-Akbar, and he is about to leave, he says, oh my son, life will become ugly after you. Life will become disliked without you. You're everything that I have. If you take your son to a basketball game, if he keeps telling you, Baba, attend my game, attend this match, come and watch me play. So you go once a month, once a week, you spend an hour of your time watching your son play, even if he's not good. Tell him, Baba, you're so good. I think you have a future in this. You're the best player. Inspire him so that when he grows up, he has self-esteem. He can stand on his own feet. He's not afraid of society. He doesn't consider himself as a mockery and a failure. But what do we do? Baba, I'm not bringing you again. Why, Baba? Because you, I mean, you're just wasting my time and your time. Why? You really think you can play basketball? You really think you can play baseball? You really think that you're good at this? What's the future of this sport, Baba? You should go become a doctor. You're never going to become a professional basketball player. He's only 10. He's only 12. Today, if he thinks he's going to become the next Michael Jordan, it's okay. Let him live his dreams. The separation between the parents and their children has played an enormous role in this identity crisis. And that is why tonight I would like to specifically shed light on this topic in the following manner. Number one, when it comes to our identity as Muslims living in the West, we will review the opinion of Muslims living in Muslim countries in the Middle East in regards to Muslims in the West. Number two, we will look at the interactions of Muslims. How are, how are, how are we ought to act with other non-Muslims in the West? Number three, we will examine Muslims living in the West. At the fourth stage, we will examine Western Muslims. And fifth, what is our responsibility and role as individuals living in the Western society? Many of us have family back home. 
Many of us have fathers, mothers, cousins, aunts, uncles that live in the Middle East. So I, as an American, when I tell them I'm an American Muslim, or if I'm British, I tell them I'm a British Muslim, or you tell them I'm a Kiwi Muslim, so you're an American? What a sellout. You're British? What a sellout. Don't you know the crimes that they have committed in Middle Eastern countries and Muslim countries? So that makes me think twice before I call myself an American Muslim, a British Muslim, a Kiwi Muslim. I shy away from even taking part of the society. I don't want the condemnation. I don't want to live with a taboo of having to be labeled Hadas al-Amriki. But let me tell you something. First of all, we live in a completely different environment. We live in a completely different society. We have a completely different responsibility. Our calling is completely different than them. They look at the West differently than we do. They only focus at the Western foreign policy. And by me being an American Muslim, I don't have to agree with the American foreign policy. That's not required of me. Neither it is belittled or looked down upon if I, as an American Muslim, critique the American foreign policy. It's not required of me to come and agree, for example, the President or the Congress 100%. No. Second of all, more importantly, we have different challenges. We face different laws. There are many laws that if you, in the West, that if you were to ask an average Muslim living in the Middle East or Middle Eastern country, they would have absolutely no clue. For example, positive discrimination. That's a law that's been passed in most Western countries, including New Zealand. What is it? There are groups of minorities, of people, who face discrimination because of anything. Because it's, because it's cultural sometimes, because it's nationalistic, because of religion, because of ethnicity. And there is a law that says we have to create equality for those individuals. We have to equally employ them. We have to equally give them jobs. We have to equally give them admission to schools. We have to equally grant them citizenship so that we establish a society based on equality. Some of you may have come here 10 years ago. Some of you 15 years ago. Some of you 10 years ago, five years ago, but now you're all part of this society. Every time you get in and out of this country, what do they tell you? Welcome home. Where were you? You say, I went to Iraq, that's where you were born. You went to Pakistan, that's where you were born. You went to Afghanistan, that's where you were born. When you come home, they don't say, oh, how was home? Did you have fun? They say, no, 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 no. Welcome home. This is your home. You have adopted this land as your 
country as your home, many of you, if not every single one of you, will live your whole life here and probably die here as well. So we face a completely different calling. We have a different, completely different responsibility. And many of the Middle Eastern so-called so Islamic countries, you can live there for 60 years and never become a citizen. You can own a skyrise in that country and never become a citizen. You can serve as a professor or a doctor for 50 years in that country and still be treated as a foreigner. We have a different responsibility. And let me say this, we should not wait for my cousin or my uncle or my grandfather in the Middle East to give me a green light to become part of the society. To tell me it's okay for you to be part of this community. Number two. We as Muslims sometimes look at the West as non-Muslims, true? But not every non-Muslim is non-Islamic. Not every non-Muslim is non-Islamic. There are some non-Muslims who are way more Islamic than thousands of Muslims. There are non-Muslims that stand for the Islamic teachings a lot better than many Muslims. How many non-Muslims you know that have dedicated at least part of their wealth, part of their time, part of their career, to go and travel in Africa and impoverished countries to help the poor, to help the needy, to help the orphans. How many physicians do you know that travel once at least once every 10 years? Some of them travel for a month within the year. They go to impoverished areas and dedicate their time for humanity. How many non-Muslims do you know that will never lie? that will never cheat, that take transparency in their jobs very seriously. And how many Muslims do you know that pray every single day but they lie? Every single day but they cheat. How many do you know that carry the name of a Muslim but they're non-Islamic? Today the world sees them. Daesh. ISIS, Salah, they pray. Salah, they take an hour for them. Quran, they read. Beards, mashallah, they have a ton. Their flag, La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah. Their name, Al-Dawla al-Islamiyya. But are they Muslim? Do they have anything to do with Islam? No. Similarly, some people say, say it, well, I, I really enjoy having my kids be surrounded by Muslim kids. I want to always hang out with Muslims. And you know, it's, I, don't, I don't know about this whole intermingling. I tell them, okay, good, good, very good. But those Muslims who you're hanging out with, or your children are making friends with, 
Do they only carry the name of Islam or are they Islamic? Do they teach your kids that prayer and honesty and fidelity and nobility go hand in hand? Or no, pray but do insurance fraud. Pray but take the welfare check and put it in your pocket without having an under table job. This is haram. This is haqqunnas. This is the right that belongs to people. Tomorrow on the day of judgment, Allah will say, I forgive that which you had sinned between me and you. Between you and your Lord. But taking the rights of the people, I will not forgive. They have to forgive you. Isn't this the teachings of Islam? More importantly, I find that sometimes some youth, when they come towards religion, when they come towards Islam, you see his boss, he's telling you, I really enjoy. You went to Hajj? Bless, bless you. You're doing it young. You see a woman wearing hijab in Western countries. Some people congratulate her. Some non-Muslims declare a hijab day and they wear Muslim kids in unis, in hospitals, in the workplace. But her aunt, her Muslim friend comes and tells her, You're still too young. You should wait, become 60, 70 years old. And then wear hijab when hijab is no longer required. Or, Ammu, why are you going to Hajj? You're only 25. You should wait when you become 65 so they take you with a wheelchair. Now you should focus on buying a house, buying a car, getting married, going to vacation, seeing Europe, seeing Hawaii, Vegas, and then you think of Hajj. But you see, the non-Muslim will be the first to tell you, if you need 10 days off, I will help you do that. I'm your boss as a non-Muslim. You need to go for a pilgrimage, I can help you out. There are some Muslim employers on the other hand who will tell you why, where are you going? Karbala? Shirk? <laughs> there are people in Muslim countries when they go to Karbala to visit Imam Hussein, they have to get their passport stamped in another separate paper. Because as soon as the passport is stamped with Allah, they sack him out of his job. Why? Because you went to visit the grandson of Rasulullah. The same person goes to Vegas 10 years, nothing happens. But once he goes and visits the grandson of Imam of, of, of Rasulullah, he visits Imam Hussein, there's a question mark. <coughs> the same person at work, if he doesn't pray, it's okay. If he prays and he prays according to the school of Ahlul Bayt, there's a question mark on him. How many non-Muslims will tell you if you need a place? At work, we will provide that place for you to pray. And how many Muslims would be afraid to pray in front of other Muslims because they don't want to be judged? So we have to make a clear distinction. Many of them are non-Muslims, yes, but they're not non-Islamic. Number two. There are, there are others who will look at Islam and because of the stereotypes, because of the propaganda against Islam, will dislike you as Muslims. Will dislike Islam. 
And that's where your challenge comes in. To coexist. To change their paradigms when it comes to what they see as Islam. Something that is scary. You have to be able to remove that phobia from their hearts. Not by you compromising your belief. Not by you changing your ways. You stay who you are and try to convince him otherwise. I recall one of my family members said he was riding a plane and next to him happened to be a football player. American football. Those guys are huge. So he said as soon as he got on the plane, he received a call from Iraq, so he was speaking loud. And then he sat down, he said, this football player looked at him and he said, I want to show you my daughter's photo. Okay. This little girl, he said, oh, she's beautiful. He said, I just want to tell you if you have any spe specific plans. You know, you should, you should not go with them because I haven't seen her for a very long time. He said, what are you talking about? I don't get it. <laughs> and then he realized, oh my God, this person is probably thinking I'm going to hijack the plane. I personally had a lecture somewhere, well, Houston, Texas, and I was leaving back to California, I, so I went from the lecture straight to the airport, and, and it was on 9-11. So I sat next to a person, he looked at me and he said, welcome to America, the land of Christianity. I ignored him, I said, you know, this guy, ignore him. And he kept going, I said, listen, you don't, first of all, you don't have to speak like that. I can understand every word that comes out of your mouth. Second of all, America is not the land of Christianity. It's the land of tolerance. It's the land of coexistence. It's the land of religious freedom. So I said, yeah, but you know, you Muslims did this, this. I said, okay. Where's the problem? Let's talk about it. She said, Quran. Yeah, your Quran is scary, this, that. I said, okay, give me the verses. Let's talk about them. So he gave me a couple of verses. And we talked about them. Then I told him, do you have a Bible? He said, yes, I do. I'm a pastor. I said, okay, can you grab your Bible? He said, yeah, sure. So I started giving him quotes. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse number 1. Deuteronomy 17, 1. He kept opening them. I said, why don't you read them? He said, no, no, well, I can explain those verses. I said, I can also explain my Quran. I also have a perspective. What gives you the right over me? When you shy away from such responsibilities, when you shy away from your faith, when you isolate yourself, that's where the problem grows and grows and grows. But if we take a list of the top 10 most utterly misunderstood subjects or notions about Islam, and we make sure we study them, we understand them, we memorize them so that when we are in discussions with others, we're able to explain to them. We're able to justify our stance. Third type of Muslims are the Muslims who only physically live in this country or in the West. And there are Muslims in the West. He's just a person in the West that happens to be Muslim. What do I mean? 
I mean they only physically live here. Physically, his passport changed. Once it was Afghani, now it's become Kiwi. Once it was Iraqi, now it's become Kiwi. Once it was Iranian, now it's become Kiwi. He once carried a Pakistani passport, now he's carrying an American passport. Physically, he lives in America. Mentally, he lives back home. Mentally, he lives in Iraq. Mentally, he lives in Pakistan. Mentally, he lives in Afghanistan. Only location has changed for him, nothing else. Even the masjid, he wants to create a small cultural center for cultural festivals. So every time he goes to the masjid, he reminds himself of back home. We can't afford flying every weekend to Baghdad, to Kabbalah, to Qom, to Mashhad, to Kabul. So what do we do? We create a small Kabul. We create a small Baghdad. So every time I go, Wallah, I feel like, Allah, it's so nice to be back home. It's so nice to eat the Timan Bagildah. Only physically they live here. One of the brothers <coughs> told me, say it. We had elections in our country. And the same time, Iraq had elections. Every time I went to the masjid, they're talking about the Iraqi elections. He said, in our own country, the elections were made, a new government took place, they started, and this person didn't even recognize once that there's an election in this country. Only and only talks about elections in Iraq. This person only physically lives there. Mentally, he's in Iraq, he should go back. And this is what happens when youth come every day. They live in the society, they go to school in the society, they work in the society, they mingle in the society, they live in the society, when they come to the masjid, it's as if they've gone 10,000 miles away. And that's a big problem, especially in our masjids, in our houses of worship. Allah says to the Arabs, لَقَدْ بَعَثَ فِيكُمْ رَسُولًا مِنْكُمْ when he speaks about, for example, Saleh, he says he was the brethren. He was one of them. He was one of the boys. He grew up with them. He spoke their language. He knew everything about their culture. <clears throat> so they accepted him. They welcomed him. They wanted him. There wasn't a culture crash when Rasulullah spoke. He did not speak Chinese with a translator to Arabic. No, he was one of them. He was one of them. Every community was appointed a prophet from amongst them. There is a reason for that. But when it comes to us, our masjids, what do we do? We import. We import. If you import, import somebody that's going to speak your language. That's going to talk about your issues. That's going to solve your problems. He's not going to talk about the problems of back home that you have really nothing to do with. Try to make your houses of worship centers for learning, centers for awareness. Try to motivate some of the youth within the community go to study in the Hawza to become scholars to come back to your community and serve your community.
motivate them, choose them, help them. Number four, I want to talk about Muslims in the West that have adopted their countries as their land. They had found, I came from Iraq, 16 members of my family were killed. I've come from Afghanistan, Taliban murdered us. I ran away to have a better living. I came here, my children went to school. I came here, I received health care. I came here, I found respect. I came here, I found tolerance. I want this to be my country. I'm not ashamed to declare that. I'm not ashamed to own that. I want to be an American Muslim. I want to be a British Muslim. I want to be a Cuban Muslim. I don't see anything wrong with that. I want to put the American flag in my masjid. I want to put the Kiwi flag in my masjid. I don't see anything wrong with that. Now you might tell me, Sayyid, but you know all the problems in the West. You want us to just completely become Westernized? There's a difference. I agree that within the West, there are teachings that are completely dangerous to family values, to morality, to ethics. The youth, what do they look for? MTV. MTV shows them Justin Bieber. Every day he's getting arrested. MTV shows them to, de to, to demean and to belittle women. Woman becomes a piece of entertainment. It teaches them that you have to become rich by any means necessary. Yeah, I agree. In some Western nations, 60% of children were born out of wedlock. 60%. I don't want to talk about God and marriage and church and masjid. But those 60% of the kids, when they grow up, they're not going to have a dad. Who's my dad? I don't know. What happened to him? I've never seen him. So what happened, mom? Try to explain that to a kid. He's going to feel a gap within him. A lot of those children end up seeking a place somewhere else to justify their existence in games, behind bars, in crime. And they look at people that are in similar condition that they had as their role models. And there are plenty of them, plenty of rappers, plenty of gangsters that come from the hood, that can be the, the role models for them. So yeah, I agree, that's dangerous. <coughs> I also agree, say, what about you know, this kid, he comes 12th grade, he says, I want to go to the prom. I want to go to the 12th year party, graduation party. There's drinking, there's drugs, there's also... I agree, I agree. So Sayyid, what do we do? Do we let them become Western? Yes. What's the solution? You choose, you tell them, look, there is no way that you can convince them they're not Kiwis. They're not Americans. They're not British. They're not Western. There's no way you can do that. But you can choose a path within the West that is suitable for them, that is compatible with Islam. The West is not all about, you know, gangsters and rap and, and rock stars and... No, it's not about that. Tell him instead of becoming the next 50 Cent or Britney Spears, become the next Bill Gates. Become the next dean of your school. 
become the next ambassador of peace in the United Nations. That's also part of the West. Don't try to fight their identity. And we have to understand one thing, brothers and sisters. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam. He dealt with Quraysh, Quraysh, idol worshippers, pagans. If you think that there's indecency today, go look at the West. Look, look at go look at Arabia a thousand four hundred years ago. They were truly like animals. Even animal does not kill its own child. They bury their own daughters alive. One of them takes 10 wives, 15 wives, 20 wives. Then when he dies, his son inherits his own stepmothers. Like inheriting, you know, a piece of furniture. Rasulullah lived in such a society. But yet he never stopped calling himself Mekki. He never stopped calling himself Madani. Anabnu Mekkata wa Mina. Anabnu Zamzama wa Safa. He never changed his identity. He didn't say, well, look at those Meccans and I'm not going to be a Meccan. Look at those people of Medina, I don't want to be part of it. No, no, no. Rasulullah came. When he came and he owned it, then he changed it. If you always look as an outsider, look at them. It's not them. It's us. And then try to speak and advise from within. They will listen to you. But if you always speak as an outsider, if I as an American, I have to deal with this most likely probably more than you do. Our American foreign policy is horrible. But if I only come and zoom at the American foreign policy day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, they say, look at this guy, all he knows, all he knows how to do is critique. But if I one day come and speak of the top universities in the world being in America, second having freedom, third having security, Fourth, having equality. Fifth, sixth, and I said, I also have a problem with the American foreign policy. I said, good. He's part of us. He's telling us. He's teaching us. So what is my responsibility? Last item on my list. What is my, our responsibility as Muslims? Our responsibility is like, just like we enjoy the good. Just like we enjoy their schools, just like we enjoy their airports, just like we enjoy security. Brothers and sisters, just imagine you're all here. You're sitting here. You're doing your religious duties. Nobody's going to judge you. Nobody's going to hold you responsible as long as you're law-abiding citizens. As long as you don't break the law. They even help you. You give donation to the center, they give you back a check in the mail, right? So just like you own the good, just like you take the good, you enjoy the good, take responsibility in fixing the wrong. Have an input. Become part of the society. And I want to go back to the topic that I began discussing this lecture with, Islamophobia. Don't ignore Islamophobia. Don't say, I have no responsibility. Let them be afraid of Muslims. You know what the problem is going to be? Today, if they search me at an airport because of my name, tomorrow they'll do the same thing to your child. Then they'll do it to his grandkid. For 200 years you'll be 
separated from the rest of the people. That's your responsibility. Don't make your centers only a place where I congregate 10 days of Muharram. Some people, alhamdulillah, it's not even 10 days, it's two days. That's all they have to do with religion. Two days, two days. Three days out of the year, they're present in the Majlis. The rest, no, they have nothing to do with it. The school of Imam Hussein teaches responsibility. The school of Imam Hussein teaches us the spirit of reform, the spirit of rejuvenation. The school of Imam Hussein teaches us how to give life to the ignorant, how to remove misconceptions. We come to the school of Imam Hussein, contemplate on Hussein, contemplate on his message, contemplate on his generosity. Imam Hussein did not sacrifice himself so that Jawad Qazwini would wear black for him. Imam Hussein set an example for Jawad Qazwini to follow him and emulate him. Imam Hussein did not give his sacrifice so that I come and shed tears for him. Imam Hussein set an example for me to follow. Let's not go away from the spirit of Imam Hussein and the spirit of Ashura and get busy with the other cultural activities. I have nothing against them. But let us not lose focus of why is it that Imam Hussein embarked on that journey. لكي آمر بالمعروف وأنهى على المنكر وأسير على سيرة جدي وأبي وهذا يزيد رجل فاسق فاجر شارب للخمر قاتل للنفس المحترمة وقد ركزني بين اثنتين بين السلة والذلة وهيهات من الذلة يأبى الله لنا ذلك ورسوله والمؤمنون إسز I, the, the reason why I have embarked on this journey is to perfect the ummah with decency, with akhlaq, with morality. That is why his grandfather sees him and he says, I came and I perfected your akhlaq, and once again, Hussein has to remind you of that. And if it wasn't for Hussein's sacrifice and faith and religion would have been in jeopardy. And Imam Hussein was surrounded by noblemen, superstars. Imam Hussein was surrounded by schools, schools, monuments of bravery, monuments of honesty, monuments of haq and justice. And amongst them was indeed no other than Sayyidina wa Mawlana wa Muqtadana wa Habibuna Babul Hawaij Qamarul Ashira Saqi Utasha Karbala Abal Fadl Abbas Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah